Hello and welcome back to the Game Football Podcast from The Times. Today, Liverpool show their class in the Merseyside derby, but can Rafa Benitez ride the storm at Goodison? Bernardo Silva scores a goal of the season contender. Newcastle need points right now, and we get an in-depth look at how Ralph Rangnick will approach life at Manchester United. This is The Game. Hello and welcome back to the Game Podcast after what's been a very busy midweek of Premier League action with more to come. I'm Hugh Wozencroft alongside Jonathan Northcroft and Tom Clark as we uh, look back and ahead to the weekend as well. We have to begin, gentlemen, with the Merseyside derby. Everton booed off after a 4-1 defeat in front of their own fans, many of whom left before full time. Liverpool had only won once in their last nine trips to Goodison coming into this They scored four away against their local rivals, though, for the first time since November of 1982. They'd also scored at least twice in the last 18 in all competitions. They've hit 43 in the first 14 games of the season. They're purring, but despite that, they're actually third in the Premier League table, while Everton dropped to 14th. And as I predicted, Rafa's at the wheel was being sung by those away fans. Liverpool were brilliant again, Johnny, but it did show stark difference between what's been happening over the past few years at both clubs. Yeah, I mean, it showed a gap that is getting bigger and bigger and bigger, despite the fact that, I mean, Everton are one of the richest football clubs in the world. And they, they're not playing anything even remotely like that. They're, not, they're barely playing like a Premier League team at the moment. And Liverpool are just, I think, probably playing as well as they did in the, in the season they won the title. They're certainly scoring more goals. They scored 63 in all competitions this season already, which is kind of mind-boggling. And I, I mean, I read somewhere this morning that they had more XG in the first 10 minutes of that game than Everton had in four of their matches this season. It could have been 6-1, could have been 7-1, but for a great performance by Jordan Pickford. The harshest thing for Everton fans to try and stomach is how this gap has grown despite, you know, best part of half a billion pounds spent on recruitment, despite having one of the richest owners in the Premier League. And in a way, in a phase when the money's been used up, because now the club's sort of struck by FFP and it can't really access that owner funding that Mashiri and his backer, Uzmanov, might be able to provide. They've kind of spent the money. And what have they got to show for it? I mean, the best player on the pitch last night for Everton was Damari Gray, who Rafa Benitez managed to, to kind of cram in on a, almost a free transfer. So that's not the work of Mashiri or Marcel Brands. That's not the work that's been done at the club with this money. That's almost an accident that, that he's there. A lot of the anger is now turning on the board. It was turning on Bill Kenwright. It was turning on Denise Baxendale Barrett last night and on Marcel Brands. And it's understandable because, it, it, you know, wh- whether Rafa Benitez is, is palatable to Everton fans or not because there's Liverpool connections, it's almost a side issue. This club's had some of the best managers in Europe or, or some of the most sort of decorated managers in Europe now, Koeman, Ancelotti, Benitez, and it's getting worse. And that's why the fingers are pointing at the people at the top. Brands over recruitment and the board over how this this kind of advantageous position has just been squandered so easily in the last few years. Tom, I think that's a very good point. Is, is it time for the chairman, Bill Kenwright, the director of football, Marcel Brands, to answer for this? I know Steve Walsh was involved in recruiting a lot of those duds as well. Yeah, Brands would be the one you'd be looking at, isn't it, in terms of the players that Johnny hasn't mentioned. You know, it, it reminds me a little bit of West Ham a few years ago and all the conversations we've had around them and a lack of identity and the praise that we're now putting on West Ham in terms of having that identity, David Moyes being in charge and buying David Moyes type players, et cetera, et cetera, that we've said so much this season. And Everton just don't have that. They've had, been so confused about what their identity has been. Johnny listed the Koomans, the Ancelotti's with aspirations for Champions League, huge amount of spending, and it's just not happened. So they're now in a position, they've got a manager like Rafa Benitez, who is perhaps of that David Moyes ilk, who could, in time, give them an identity, but it was going to take time and it's going to probably take them selling some of their players. I mean, you know, and a lot of the analysis in recent weeks has come back to, oh, they really missed Dominic Calvert-Lewin. Put Dominic Calvert-Lewin in that team last night and it would not have made a difference, I don't think, unfortunately. As talented a player as he is, 
he might have run the channels a bit harder. He might have caused Virgil van Dijk a few more problems, but they still would have been completely overran in midfield. And I think the most telling thing is, yes, Liverpool were great. They scored some good goals, but I honestly thought Liverpool were in about second or third gear for most of the match. I tend to agree with that. You know, I, I, I do think there was a much higher intensity, though. I think that showed. They Look, they get the job done, Liverpool, don't they? They, they? The players still treated it like a Merseyside derby. They still went at it. I think Everton's players did as well. I just think that the quality is so different but I, I, I look I think I've, I've now reverted to a very settled view on Everton which is that the fans are going to have to accept that at least for the next few seasons not much is going to happen at the club and mm. I think Rafa Benitez for me is the ideal manager for that because he's done it at Newcastle before no money to spend you know trying to wring the absolute best performance that you possibly can out of a squad that probably isn't at the level for what, what the fans want them to do. You know, if Everton finish 12th, I think you've got to be happy with that at this point in time. You know, they're just, they're just not that good, unfortunately. And when they lose, you know, Yerry Mina, I know the Everton fans as well think is, is a big miss and, and probably the spine of their team. I know decorey has been back for the last couple of games and Calvert-Lewin. But in reality, even if you had all three of those players, they aren't close to Liverpool. And I don't want to be harsh on Everton, because the top three clubs in the Premier League, I don't think anyone's really close to at this point in time. They are in a league of their own and it's going to be very difficult for anyone to, to certainly outplay them, but even get a win against them. You know, you've got to really put in a fan, fantastic performance at this point in time. Identity's right. You know, Tom sort of hits the nail on the head there with, with, with recruitment because it's not just about buying good players or, or you know, it's, it's about buying players that fit together like jigsaw pieces. And, and that's, why Liverpool are so good. That's why Manchester City are so good. You know, they, Manchester City have been buying Pep Guardiola players for almost 10 years now. They were buying them before he arrived because they knew he was coming. Liverpool have been buying to order since Klopp arrived and, and probably before then. You can see how West Ham have got that strength because of their identity. You can see Arsenal starting to come together because they're starting to find players that fit. They've recruited players that fit the, the guys that they already have, the Sackers and the the Smith throws and and that's where you're right, Tom. That if it's going to be a turnaround forever, and it's going to be a couple of years, or it's going to be at least a process of settling on who they are going to be, who, who are we as a football club, and then trying to fit the players around that. You can see the imprint of two or three different recruiters on that squad. You can see pieces that just don't fit together, and there's no sort of spirit to it either because there's not a sort of settled culture, and it's just so far from the Everton that was there under David Moyes for so long. They've just drifted so far from that kind of, you know, dogs of war, people's club, hardest working, biggest underdogs in the league. They're just, I, I don't know what I'm looking at now when I'm looking at Everton. One win in 11 for them, six defeats in their last seven games. Can Rafa Benitez ride this out, Tom? Yeah, I think he can because... I think partly because they've had so many managerial changes, partly because I don't know where they go after him and I don't think they'll get relegated. So I think that's the position they're in this season. They probably, as you said, finished 12th. They need one of those seasons under a manager like Benitez, maybe clear out some of these players that just aren't good enough, move them on to leagues in Europe where maybe they'll prosper and maybe get some money in and Benitez can sign some of his own players. It's not great. It's obviously not good for him. Obviously, his background as a Liverpool manager might count against him slightly. But I think any rational Everton fan would see where does the good come in sacking Rafa Benitez at this point? And I just don't see what the benefit is. So I think from that point of view, it's not perhaps not the way that most Everton fans would want their managers to stay in a job. But from that point of view, I don't see how he goes because I don't see the sense in getting rid of him. He is a, a manager capable of, of building clubs, building teams over a period of years. And if not him, yeah, who? Because also any, any new manager is going to want to put their imprint on it and they're going to want the money to spend. And, and that doesn't seem to be there at the moment. So I would trust Rafa. This probably needs to be cleared out before the whole thing's put back together. That's where they should go. But it's such an angry football club at the moment that I'm not sure where they're heading. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not sure if the, the, you know, often when a board's under pressure like they now are, when they get barracked as they're leaving the, the seats in the stand, they react by trying to please the fans by getting rid of the manager. We've seen that at other clubs. So it might be they end up sacking Rafa to save their skins, but it wouldn't be the right thing to do. 
And who would come in? That would be a massive question as well. Sean Dyche might finally get his opportunity at Goodison Park and all the pundits can stop wanging on about him. Salah scored two. He was irresistible again. And someone put to me last night, Liverpool have the best front three in world football easily. I'd probably agree with you. Yes, they do. But only if Salah's in it. Because I think if you take Salah out, well, let's put it this way. Liverpool's front three for me, with all due respect, there are some very good players there is Salah plus two. If my team is playing Liverpool and Salah's not in that front three, I will take it all day long. As good as Jota Mane and Firmino are, he at the moment is probably the best player in the world. I mean, if you replaced him with Messi, I actually think Liverpool would drop a level. And that says something. (laughs) (laughs) It's true. It's true. He was brilliant, Tom. There's the line the team will be using on social media later. RIP your mentions, Hugh. That's all I'm going to say. No, I think you'll probably be. Right. I think you're probably right. I think it's consistency with Salah, isn't it? You talk about Salah plus two. The other three, they all have peaks and troughs a little bit, don't they? Mane's been excellent, and there were times last season, I think, and maybe the season before, where people were talking about him being as good as Salah. Firmino recently has had a little little sprint of form just before he got injured, but with Salah, it's just the unbelievable consistency of his play that. That, me- that means, as you say, it's, it is Salah plus two. Yeah, probably is the best player in the world, despite what Pep Guardiola says about Bernardo Silva. When you've got a player like that who can run behind the defence the way he can with the timing of those runs, angle of the runs, and control the ball at speed the way he does, so can carry the ball beyond you and score, it's just enormously impossible, to def- difficult to defend against that. I, can, I think in world football, maybe Haaland can do it to an extent. Mbappe can do it and Salah can do it. But Salah's probably better than those two, quite frankly, at the moment. And that's before you look at the other things he can do. I mean, he can dribble through you and score world-class individual goals. His pressing is is unrecognisable to where it was three or four years ago. He's really embraced that side of the game. He's consistent, as um, Tom says, and he is the leader of that attack. And they're great players, but he does stand above them. And and his appetite is something Jurgen Klopp talks about a lot as well. For him to be performing better now, arguably, than he was in that 2017-18 season, says so much about his his mindset. And it's it's just a privilege watching him. He's been absolutely sensational. tend to agree with with both of you. Um, We've got to talk about some of the teams doing really well in the Premier League. Let's have a quick whiz through some of the other results in midweek. Chelsea weren't at their best. They did get all three points against Watford. Just a quick mention on this, as they're above Liverpool right now and Manchester City at the top of the Premier League. Tom, was that the result of champions not playing your best, still getting the job done? I'm not, I'm not going to go out on a limb and say it's the result of champions as, as much as I enjoy an early prediction, Hugh. But I think what's interesting about Chelsea in the last few weeks, I remember we talked earlier in the season and Alisson wrote a piece about in the Champions League about how they basically swapped 11s essentially backup 11 and the starting 11 was on the bench and she said oh you could just interchange these two teams what's been really interesting in the past few weeks is because of the injuries it's not that kind of starting 11 backup 11 it's just a complete squad with a system and they can all interchange you can get injuries you know they had Reese James out last night you've got players like Chalabar Loftus-Cheek players I didn't think would even get a look in under Tuchel coming in playing a part Ziyech coming off the bench to get the winner you know, it just looks like a really well-drilled, well-organized machine, if you like. And yes, there are certain more important players than others. Jorginho, Mason Mount was fantastic last night. But that's the most striking thing to me about Chelsea at the minute is that it's it's this well, well-oiled, well-drilled, organized machine under Tuchel. And it doesn't really matter who plays. They seem to put in a kind of performance at least. And it, he was interesting in the post-match afterwards saying that they thought they were really poor. And I actually watched watched some of it and thought they looked brilliant. And I mean, the winning goal as well was a lovely, lovely team move. Brilliant move down the left and that pullback from Mason Mount for Ziyech. So that would be the thing that if I was Guardiola and Klopp, I would be most worried about. Let's move on to Manchester City next. Uh, Steven Gerrard inflicted with a first defeat as Aston Villa boss after winning his first two games. There was a, a pretty resurgent second half from his side at Villa Park. Managed to pull a goal back, but it's now four wins in a row for Manchester City coming in to this period of form, this run, Johnny, which we've seen take them to titles in the past. Do you think they're going to hunt down? I say hunt down Chelsea, they're only a point behind. What was astonishing was watching Liverpool and experiencing how good they are and then thinking they're third and thinking, how do they feel? 
given how well they're playing, and they cannot, they can't shake off or even get ahead of Chelsea and Man City because of the the consistency. And and, and City, it's fascinating because I, I agree, I echo everything Tom says about about Chelsea, but then City are the team with the greatest know-how in terms of how to navigate Premier League season and win it. And, and they've had some sublime performances this season. That last night wasn't one of them, but it was the other side of the coin. It was digging in in a really awkward second half where you could see Villa with, with that kind of inspiration from Gerrard really having a go at them, playing really well, scored a great goal from Ollie Watkins and, and had City under pressure. They had to fight. You know, old Fernandinho was on taking bodies in midfield and doing that bit of the game. And, uh, and, and they're capable of doing that now. Ruben Diaz scored a fantastic goal just to add to his kind of, you know, repertoire as a centre-half. It's, I, I mean, I'm not the first to say it, but, you know, this top three is the best I've seen in the Premier League and, and we're not even halfway through the season. Almost impossible to guess who's going who's gonna to do it because they're just all such a level and it might come down to, you know, I'm already looking at Chelsea v Liverpool on January the 2nd and just thinking it's going to come down to the games between them. And also, by the way, are we having Bernardo Silva goal of the season so far? For a team move, counter-attack, volley? Nah, nah, nah. nah. You, can't, you can't leave two players back against no, Manchester but the best, City. Come no, on. But the best, the best bit about it is the start of the move and them coming out of defence. And I think it's Mares just on the edge of his own box who... I was watching yeah, it and yeah. I didn't know that this I didn't know that this was the goal. I was watching the highlights and I thought, God, he's gonna get tackled here. And it's the bravery to just hold off his man and I think he nutmegs someone. That is just peak Manchester yeah, City. But, but he could have that. It wasn't, it's it wasn't a, a massive pass. hipster to say that no. is as good as the volley, but it, it, it almost <laughs> is. It's that it's that was superb. And I mean, but the volley, I mean, come on, how many times do we see even the top level players shank that out for a throw in? That was that was pretty good. It's my, I can't think of a better goal in terms of embodying what a team is about and also the actual finish being wow. As I brushed my teeth this morning, I thought definitely <laughs> definitely on the short list for goal of the season. So if it doesn't make the top 10, I will be stunned. But um but you know, you know there were other contenders last night, you know, we'll talk about them a little bit later on, but just the conversation that you were having a few moments ago though, Johnny, um about the top 3 in the Premier League being as good as ever. I was once again not to hammer him listening to the Premier League Chief Executive Richard Masters talking about the redistribution of money and needing to give more to the EFL and saying, got to look at, look at it from two sides. Um, yes, the EFL needs more money, but if we take away from the Premier League, um, that could harm this product of having amazing players. We haven't heard you on it, so what do you think? I can see that argument. And one of the, one of the things that always really puzzled me about the, the Super League was the idea that the, the, the big particularly those three clubs we've mentioned, but even just the big six in England would start to try and give away some money to the European competition because there's a gap. There's a, you know, the, the, these, these three clubs that we're seeing now are so good because partly they're, they're able to now collect pretty much the best players in, in Europe. They don't face the opposition that they used to. We've got a stricken Barca and Real. Um, they've only, you know, the Bayern Munich probably can't quite match financially. And, the gap's going to grow because of that because they've also got the best coaches. So I, I get that. I get that the, 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 the health of the Premier League is, is producing these brilliant teams and they should be careful about trying to dilute it. I think it's a bit disingenuous of Masters to then say that that means you can't, you know, spare a few coppers for the EFL. I mean, that, that linkage is a bit, that's a bit much. Mm-hmm. Um, if they start giving money, more money like the transfer levy to the EFL. It's actually the, the smaller clubs in the Premier League that would be affected the most. I don't think it really would affect the big the big three or four or the big six. I think it would it would affect more the the Southamptons and, and the Palaces and so on. That's 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 probably what Masters is really talking about. But saying, but look at Mo Salah. Do you want Mo Salah or do you want to, you know, help help Rochdale? Yeah, I mean, look, it's an extra, it might be an extra 10 to 15 million quid per team. Even the ones that get relegated are currently given 60 million just to go down to the championship. I think the money's there, even for the teams lower in the league, Johnny. But, you know, I'm maybe a cynic. I'm going to get off Richard Masters back. I'll move on to Leicester City's instead. More inconsistency from them. They drew two all at Southampton. They were very wasteful in the end, in particular, Jamie Vardy. Johnny, is this team now eighth going to struggle to finish in the top six for you? Yes, it is. It, it, it's a transitional season. I, I think they, they've 
the attacking side of Leicester's game is probably, despite Vardy missing a few, he's had a great season, but it's probably still more or less there. But defensively, they've been a bit of a mess. Without the ball, they haven't been the old Leicester. And it's 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 a squad that's been, you know, really hit by injuries, um, also affected by maybe a couple of key players, maybe a loss of form or decline. I don't know which what it is. If you look at people like Ricardo and, and, and Soyuncu, indeed, he's not having a good season either. And, and then, you know, signing quite a lot of new players in the summer just makes it transitional. So I think less fans are going to have to stick with it, actually, uh, and accept the kind of season, frankly, they'd have been delighted by eight or nine years ago, which would be a mid-table season. Tom, what do you think about where Leicester are right now? Can they turn things around? I think they can turn things around. You know, looking at that table, we've talked about the top three and how close they are. I'd say kind of fourth, fifth, sixth is up for grabs for anyone down to Man United in 10th, I think. So from that point of view, yes, they're still in it. But I think in a more broader sense, and this is for any Leicester fans listening to to come on Twitter and tell me I'm wrong, is it a terrible thing to have this kind of season? You know, watching them, yes, there's some inconsistencies. You've got players like James Madison, who I'm going to mention because I put him in my fantasy football team at the start of the season and he did absolutely bugger all, only to now start scoring. He kind of embodies that kind of season they've got. It's going to be twists and turns, ups and downs, frustrating games like last night where they probably should have won. But they've also got young players coming through. They've got a manager who's probably going to be in demand in the summer if they can keep hold of him. They won the FA Cup last season. Is it a disaster if they finish ninth, eighth and miss out on Europe, but bring some young players through? Yes. I, 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 I mean, that's, but yes, yes, it probably is in the case of modern football, but wouldn't it be nice if it wasn't? I mean, a Leicester fan, tell me I'm wrong or, or restore my faith in footballing sanity and tell me that it's okay. Yeah, we don't mind. Please, please let me know, because I think it'd be fine. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I look, they've had some bad injuries in defence and, and that maybe has, has stopped them. But um, I've been slightly disappointed by some of their performances, particularly in Europe. I just, I expected a little bit more. Europe's been a, a weird one. I, I, I agree they've, they've underwhelmed in that campaign. But the, the way to look at it is if they could get to the end of the season and have Fafana back, James Justin back, Dewsbury Hall looks like he's a bit of a talent. You know, Madison back in form. Pat Sandaka, who's a fantastic signing. Samari settled into the league. That's not too bad. You know, uh, mid-table, but but a, a new team starting to emerge. I don't think that's too bad at all. It's interesting you mentioned Pat Sandaka there. He was my shout for a striker that, that Brighton should have got their hands on. They weren't booed this week, Brighton and Hove Albion. Neil Mopay scoring a beautiful overhead kick. Now that is a goal of the season contender as well for a a last-minute equaliser at West Ham, which is a very good result for any team. But David Moyes' West Ham now haven't won any of their last three Premier League games and they host the leaders Chelsea this coming Saturday. Tom, is this to be expected from West Ham or do you think it's a, a poor run? No, I think it's fine. I don't think you can say to be in fourth after 14 games doesn't really matter if they have a little dip in form. As I've said, they're they're currently top of that next bunch of teams after the top three. So they're in a great position. I think what I'll be most telling now is coming up to the January window, whether they go and get another forward of some kind. As great as Mikel Antonio is, I really rate him really highly. He seems to be improving all the time. Just having that difference, whether it's a young player, maybe from the championship, who they think that in the style of Bowen and Ben Rama that Moyes can bring on, or maybe a player from abroad who's going to add a bit of pace or direct running, a bit of skill and guile up front, or maybe just a fox-in-the-box type striker. Just, just someone to add a point of difference so that in these games when maybe they're looking to pinch a winner, they can throw someone off the bench or maybe they can give Antonio a rest. That to me is where they're at now. They're an incredibly strong position. Yes, they've had a little dip, but that would be the next thing. Go and get a go and get a striker and let Moyes pick him because if anything is to show, it's the recruitment of late has been good. I agree with that. Um, I don't know how much you're going to disappoint the fans and all of those uh, Mikel Antonio Stan accounts if he starts going on the bench. That's all I'm going to say. You know, hey, look, you're going to disappoint me because he's been in my fantasy football team all season, so it'll be very disappointing. <laughs> and it's, it's one of the easiest picks, isn't it? But that's the point. Put him in your fantasy football team because you know he's going to play every week because they've not got another striker. So that, yeah, that's that, true. that to me, for where West Ham are at, they're doing really well in Europe as well. So that'd be great to have another forward in just to take the pressure off him as well. Because I think that does sometimes, you get that sense with West Ham that if they don't get the goal from the corner, which they did last night and they will do for the rest of the season because they're so deadly, just having that player in the box who could maybe turn home or he's going to take the one-on-one chance because that's sometimes where I think Antonio 
is a little bit lacking in that kind of traditional striker sense, that deadly instinct sense. So that would be maybe where I'm looking at. A lack of deadly instincts. Brighton, um, 10 games without a win now. Should their fans be pleased, Johnny, with their performance? Because I think they were they were very good. They played some lovely football. Jakob Moda, by the way, you have got to stick that one away. I'm sorry. That has to go in the back of the net. What a pass from Neil Mopé as well in behind Declan Rice. They, they've got Southampton away on Saturday. Is it must win for their fans, do you think, Jonathan? Yeah, look, I, 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 I give up really with what fans want and, and the booing of Graham Porter was one of the most surreal sights or sounds of the season. I think any game's a must win for Brighton in the Premier League. That's not where they, that's not where they are. They're just performing way above actually where they should be. I mean, it's funny you mentioned Moda. He, he kind of epitomises them. They've got so many really nice players who maybe lack a, a bit of killer instinct and, and, and cutting edge. We know that's their problem. We know that they, they 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 do need a bit a little bit more of that, but they've got you know they've got so much else. Yeah, they haven't won in ten games, but they've they've drawn a lot of those matches. If they're to finish in the top half of the season, yeah, they probably need to start winning again and beat Southampton. But is that really what we should be judging Brighton on, or should we just be judging them on playing great football, evolving slowly under a really talented manager, and and I suppose in that cliche being a real asset to the Premier League. Well, that's plenty of games covered in the Premier League this week and more to come. We'll be talking about Wolves, Burnley, Newcastle and Norwich next on the Game Podcast. We'll also hear a little bit later on from Constantine Eckner. He'll be discussing the new interim boss at Manchester United, Ralph Rangnick. Remember, if you're enjoying the podcast, rate us, leave us a review and make sure you're subscribed. 40 shots that is they play some fantastic football and they're in the top six right now but there has to be said that a lack of goal scoring ability could really cost them a special season what do you think about it Jonathan no they I mean they, the, the, the the best season in, in the last whatever was was when Jimenez had that had that golden spell and every team we've been talking about Brighton every team needs that that, that final element they might have a season like Brighton where they play lovely football and I've been really impressed with with Bruno Large and what he's been able to implement there and and um, and, and his ideas. Jimenez is slowly coming back. I think he's got three goals this season. He's he's still a long way from where he was. Huang probably just had a had an initial bounce. And well done to anyone who got them in the fantasy team for that, that that three weeks at the start of the season. And you know Adama's fallen off a, a, a cliff, and they've never replaced. Jota. So there's problems up front, but they're really nice to watch, as you've been saying. Yeah, it comes down to one man, doesn't it? Adama Traore. He's <laughs> just, he, nothing embodies that team better. He's so, so scary to watch, but so brilliant to watch, and yet so, so frustrating. So frustrating. You know, Danny Murphy on Match of the Day was talking about his decision making and highlighted a few points, but I, I don't think he went far enough. It, it, it really is poor. You know, it's more than just that moment when he could have played in Jimenez and he shot and yes, he hit the bar. You know, there was another moment where he's attacking and he played the ball to Jimenez, which looked like the good decision. But he actually had Ayat Nori flying up on his outside on the left. And it's the kind of move that you see top teams and top players, you know, try to have driven into a central area, then flicked the ball, kind of a reverse pass into Ayat Nori, who overlapping would have then sent the cross to the back post where Jimenez would have been sliding in. Chef's kiss, team goal, lovely stuff, 1-0, game over. Aren't Wolves brilliant? They're going to be in Europe. It's those kind of moments. And it, it's going to be a big season for Traore because he looks fantastic. I think Bruno Large is doing some great things. If he can break through that mentality point and drum into him some of that decision-making in the same way that, say, Pep Guardiola did with Raheem Sterling, Traore could be a serious, serious player in the Premier League. But... If we get to the end of the season, we're still talking about Troyer making the wrong decisions on the counter-attack, then ultimately that'll be it. 
That, but that's what it comes down to. That'll be the decisive point in Wolves' season, I think. Yeah, Bruno Lars doesn't get enough credit, actually. I think his team's played really well from the start of the season. Some very good football. You know, bear in mind when he got announced, a lot of people were saying, who? So I, yeah, I think he does exactly, deserve credit. Yeah. I think he does deserve credit. Um, and I wonder whether he will need some different players to make his dreams come true as Wolves' manager, because I think the start has been good enough that you would say with the right players... They could be a real, real success. But I wonder whether that will happen. Um, but it'll be interesting to see how they do over the coming weeks. They're in a very good position, Wolves. Uh, as I say, a nil-nil draw with Burnley, who play Newcastle United next. A massive game at the bottom of the league this weekend. Uh, earlier this week, a 10-man Newcastle held by Norwich City. Now, for a lot of people, a home game against Norwich is a banker. It was a relegation six-pointer. A point each didn't really help either of them. It was Eddie Howe's first home game in charge in person. He was back in the dugout after that spell out with COVID-19. The stats men are now saying there's a 75% chance of Newcastle going down. No wins as yet this season, Jonathan. They've got to beat Burnley at the weekend. But what went wrong against Norwich? They were lucky to get out of that game with a draw, actually. And, and I, I was tearing my non-existent hair out watching the Amazon coverage because the narrative had been set up for this to be, oh, it's Eddie Howe's first game. Oh, look at the Gallagher end trying to suck the ball in. Aren't, aren't Newcastle brave? Um, I mean, the reality is that they played with real spirit. I've got, I've got to say that. They, 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 they played with a lot of spirit. So fair play, Howe how definitely got them up for the game. But they didn't play with a lot of quality. They had a man sent off. They clung on. Norwich were very sleepy with all the possession for about an hour. Just didn't know what to do with all the ball that they had. And then Dean Smith made a made a, made a good change, a couple of good changes, brought on Eda and, and Janulis and tore them apart. Amazing goal from Pukki and and, Nor- and Newcastle clung on. And yet the narrative afterwards was was kind of it's almost like they, 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 the coverage is set up for this to be the start of the revival. And even though it wasn't. They were still trying to kind of pedal that that line. I didn't. I didn't see it myself. They were better than than they'd been against um, Arsenal. That's all I would say. The thing about Johnny's point there about the narrative, my favourite word on the podcast, of course, is that as much as it's the media and the TV pundits, that will have been in Newcastle fans' heads as well, won't it? Let's be honest. That whole stadium would have been going. Here we go. This is it. This is the start of the comeback. Of course, we can beat Norwich. Norwich are rubbish. Of course, we're going to win. And that's where you know something that. Myself and Gregor have talked about on previous podcasts where with Newcastle, it's just this pressure thing now. They've still got another month. They've still got this whole Christmas period until they can sign anyone with all this money that they've got. It starts to ramp up, doesn't it? And then bad decisions get made like Kieran Clark. It just starts to really feed into the team. And that would be my worry that, you know, they're not necessarily massively worse than the other teams down at the bottom. It's just they've got that pressure like the others don't. You know, Norwich, but for example, don't have any pressure. We've talked about it recently. They've got a new manager. I just, yeah, it's 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 worrying for Newcastle. And also, Hugh, I know you'll probably say, there's loads of money. Don't worry about it. They'll sign anyone. But the kind of players, the kind of quality players they're going to want and needing to be signing, if they've not shown a little bit of an upturn in form come January, there might be some players who go, actually, mate, don't fancy this, even no matter how much money you throw at me. The other word I've got on that is that Eddie Howe, brilliant coach, but not the best recruiter at Bournemouth. Mm. Uh, they've got to beat Burnley this weekend, I think. 14 games without a win. The run that they're going to be under is absolutely horrific during this December as well. And I think that, for me, will play a massive part. I think, bear in mind, if, if you know, they're three points behind Burnley, who are also in the relegation zone. They are six points behind Watford. So if they lose to Burnley, they'll be six points behind both of those at least. And it doesn't really matter who else is in the bottom three. Newcastle will be firmly wedged at the bottom at that point in time. Uh, Who knows what Norwich City will get in their game. But if you look at Newcastle's run after the Burnley game, up until January when they can buy players, if they don't beat Burnley, they then go to Leicester, go to Liverpool, host Manchester City, host Manchester United and go to Everton on the 30th of December. You can't really, at this point in time, predict many points out of those games after Burnley. That's why the Burnley game is so key. But I think if you go on a run of six defeats to end the year, and then you try and say to players in January, come and join us, we'll stay up if you join, we're going to have a great revolution, it's going to be very tough. I mean, for me, 
if you're going to be the richest club in world football, at least throw throw some money at it. You know, that 250 million quid, you might as well spend it in January. Get players in who are happy to play for you in the championship or more money than has ever been spent in the championship before. But at least it will get you up. I mean, that, listen, that's what I would do if I was in charge of Newcastle. You know, they got 250 million quid. You might as well sit 200 million down on it. That's all I'm saying. But that's where, again, that kind of pressure breeds... You know, I was actually squirming a little bit listening to you read that fixture list, Hugh, because you're right, that game against Burnley, who, by the way, I even as a massive Sean Dyche fan, I'm starting to get a little bit worried about myself because they're quite Sean Dyche enough. So we'll see. That'll be a massive game. But the more disastrous Newcastle seem, the more slightly mad their spending might be, is what I fear. Whereas actually they need some slightly sensible recruitment. Yes, they need to spend a lot of money but they need to make some good, solid signings that are going to lift that squad up a few notches. They don't need to be going and spending millions and millions of pounds on untested players from Europe. And that's slightly what I fear might happen as if they have a disastrous few weeks that it'll just all logic will fly out of the window. And yes, as you say, Hugh, throw some money at it, but do so in a completely illogical way. This team, I mean, just drink this in. They haven't won since May. It's really difficult to not win a game since in any competition. They haven't won a match since May, and we're looking at that fixture list. It could be, it could, I don't know, it could, it could be January before they've, they've got a chance of, of winning. I, the, the pressure, as you've been saying, is is just going to going to ramp up, and that Burnley game looks enormous because they do need to do something pretty quickly uh, to to relieve it. But uh, hey ho. It's uh, it's it's going to be fun. <laughs> it's it's a it's a fascinating uh, experiment. Should we end with Should we end with a prediction, Hugh? Come on, we've we've talked it up now. You've oh, nil, nil. Up, Hugh. nil 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 nil. <laughs> Come on, and it will feature first on the game podcast as well next week. By the way, I'm sure. <laughs> no, look, look. My 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 view on it is I, I can't. I, I in my mind, I just wish there was an an all or nothing behind the scenes. Newcastle till I die type documentary going on right now because I, you know that meme that's one of those inflatable things outside of the the car lots in America that's just got its arms flailing in the air. <laughs> that's what I imagine everyone is like inside St James's Park right now because how you're meant to recruit top players which is what we expect them, at least mid table Premier League players to come into the club. You know, when when you are staring down the barrel of a near certain relegation, it's going to be very, very hard. You know, the strangest thing is there's going to be loads of negative stories about how much money Newcastle are going to have to spend on wages and players to get them out of it. But what other option do they have? What else can they do? They're going to have to massively overspend on people like Callum Chambers, no doubt, to get try and get themselves out of it. So... You know, it's a difficult one. The funny thing about those uh, inflatable things you're talking about, Hugh, is that they're full of hot air. Get it? Brilliant. See what I brilliant. did there? <laughs> See what I did there? I like what you did there. Yeah, I like what you You can come back. You can come back. Yes, um, thanks. <laughs> up next, we're going to talk about Manchester United. The brilliant Konstantin Ekner joins us to tell all about Ralph Rangnick. So the caretaker manager, Michael Carrick, has now just one more game in charge. It comes against Arsenal tonight, if you're listening on Thursday, in the Premier League. Constantine Ekner joins us on the game podcast. He's written a magnificent profile piece on Manchester United's new interim manager, Ralph Rangnick. How are you, Constantine? I'm fine. How are you guys? Very well. Rangnick has finally been announced. As I say, he won't be in the Old Trafford dugout against Arsenal due to work permit issues. What should we expect when he arrives? We should expect someone who has a clear vision of what he wants to do. Uh, I think like Rangnick, um, there might be some questions about his uh, coaching style these days because he hasn't done much coaching in the past 10 or so years. Uh, But what he really does well and has done well in the past is uh, be a strategist and have a vision and uh, determine a certain style his team and the club should uh, employ and play and embrace. Um, And so I think that's what United fans should expect from him, uh, that he really knows the direction where United should be heading. A lot of people um, have remarked around why he has never had one of these huge jobs if he's such a brilliant coach. He has done a great job at at building football clubs, but why do you think this is his first major managerial appointment and it's only for six months? He's not the easiest character, I would say. He wants to really have a say in most of things. Um, So uh, 
in regards to, let's say, Bayern Munich or Borussia Dortmund. So the, the big clubs in Germany that might have been, you know, uh, potential candidates for him to go. I don't know if a club like Bayern Munich wanted to give him uh, the keys to the kingdom and want him to have a say in everything um, because there are other powerful people and there have been powerful people and Bayern Munich like Uli Hoeneß and Karl-Heinz Rummenigge who just wanted to still be in charge. And with Rangnick, it's a bit different when you look back at his time at RB Leipzig, for instance. Sure, there were other people. There were the investors from Red Bull, um, and there were some, you know, people from Austria who had something to say in terms of what uh, RB Leipzig and their sister clubs, Red Bull, Salzburg, and so on, what they wanted to do. But Ralf Rangnick was in charge. He determined player recruitment, and the youth academy was under his guidance. And of course, he was also coaching the team for a while. And if he wasn't coaching the, the first team of RB Leipzig, then he selected the person that coached the team. So he was really the be-all, end-all uh, in terms of decision-making at RB Leipzig. And the same goes for his time at Hoffenheim, where he had a, a, a rich investor behind him in Dietmar Hopp as SEP. Um, but still, Ralf Rangnick was the man. He was there uh, in terms of decision-making. Um, so I think many, many bigger clubs in Europe or Germany for in that regard, uh, they don't want to have someone who's uh, the be-all end-all person. Um, now with United, the situation is quite specific and quite special uh, because of uh, what has been going on for quite a while and the, the you know the post Sir Alex Ferguson era. Or um, So I guess now they hand him the keys to the kingdom at least for a while. Johnny, what do you think about Ralph Rangnick's appointment? Do you, do you think he will be a success here at Manchester United? And really, what is that? Because he's an interim with two years afterwards as a consultant. What do you think this appointment is designed to do? Well, I think they have to commit to him. And it's fascinating listening to Constantin on, on exactly how, how much he likes to force through and control the vision that, that, that's being implemented. There's no doubting the quality of that vision. There's no doubting the intelligence of that vision and the success of that vision. If you look at how Hoffenheim and then Leipzig progress, thanks to Ranić's kind of magic touch in terms of tactics, recruitment, and culture, establishing that at the club. So United have got to commit to it. I think if they do, I think there's then two things to look at. There's this short-term phase where he's coaching, and it will be fascinating to see. You know, he last coached in 2018-19. And was pretty good, but you know, football continues to evolve, so it'll be fascinating to see that. But then there's a two-year consultancy period. And if they allow that to become a proper involvement and not just a kind of ceremonial uh, association to reward him for being interim, then I think absolutely this can be a fantastic move by United. I think Solskjaer helped restore something that had been lost under Mourinho and Van Gaal, which was a sense of, of culture, identity, and soul. But you know, as we've talked about before, probably they weren't so hot on the football side. There was there was a lack of that sort of real top class football identity. And it can provide that, but they have to commit to it. It's it's all it's not just down to him; it's down to the club as well. I think Manchester United were keen to stress Rangnick's experience in their statement announcing him as the interim manager. There was lots of it, and it felt very weird as a Manchester United fan to read it because suddenly the club values experience, and it's all important. You know, the appointments that were there before stressed that we 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 almost valued inexperience and wanted the the coaches of the future maybe valued vibes a little bit more. Constantine, what do you think will happen to Darren Fletcher, who is in a director of football role, Michael Carrick, and maybe some of the you know other major names in the football side of things at Manchester United? Will Ralph Rangnick clear house? I don't know if he has the power to do so, uh, because they're still like Darren Fletcher uh, still has uh, a certain reputation and a certain standing uh, within the club and uh, with you know, in regards to probably uh, the owners, I don't know exactly what his standing is, but I still have the feeling that um, it would be a long way to go to get rid of him if, if you really want to get rid of him. I think for Darren Fletcher's own sake, uh, he should take a little bit of a backseat for the next six months uh, and then maybe further, depending on what this consultancy role will 
eventually be because we don't know really i mean consultancy is uh, or consulting is kind of a term uh, that can be everything and anything um, but I think if you are Darren Fletcher, you should take a little bit of a backseat or even embrace it as kind of an internship, um, you know, learning from Ralph Rangnick and then maybe using some of the things you learned in the next six, eight months from him and then employing some of the things or, you know, using that time uh, to gather experience and make yourself better in a way. Um, because right now and in the past few years there was a lot of uh, learning on the job going on at united with uh, fletcher carrick uh, Solskjaer also um so right now with rangnick he might not have the you know a huge collection of trophies and surely there are some negatives or some some points of criticism you can still make in regards to ralph rangnick or is he would be probably the best coach in the world and he, he isn't he is one of uh, but he's one of the best football visionaries uh so that's something uh you should use and praise and uh in, you know in regards to darren fletcher for instance pr probably really should you know consider the internship in a way strikes me that darren fletcher and michael carrick are exactly the kind of people who can or should be learning from ranyak and i think it's a great opportunity for united in that sense fletcher's not been there that long in his and it's a kind of slightly you know, vague role that he, or vague title that he's got, but he could be the next director of football, the proper guy in charge of recruitment. And Randick's record, the, the Red Bull record of recruitment is pr probably the outstanding number. That's probably the number one sort of football organization for recruitment in the last 10 years in world football. And Darren Fletcher is a bright guy. He's a humble guy. I think he's the kind of guy that will try and learn under Randick. And that's a great opportunity for United. And similarly, I think Carrick has got coaching abilities. We've, we've, we've seen that it's too easy to say, oh, he was part of Solskjaer's regime, it's his fault. We don't know what the decision-making process was there. But we also know that Kieran McKenna was heavily involved and Solskjaer was manager. So to say it was Carrick's fault, it's a big leap by people. Let's judge him what he's done so far, which has been pretty sensible as an interim, and give him the chance. And he's a, he's a very studious, studious, serious guy who will be really interested to try and learn from, from Rannick. And don't forget, Fletcher was involved in Rannick's recruitment. Fletcher wanted this. So I think that's a great opportunity for United. For Rannick to leave in a couple of years and to have maybe a director of football in waiting and to have apprenticed Michael Carrick's coaching. I think there might be a culture shock coming at Manchester United for a few people. Um, in particular, Tom, the players. Who do you think is going to excel under Ralph Rangnick, given what you've heard about him? Who do you think will fail? Well, it's really interesting. I watched yesterday a kind of hour-long interview with Ranić talking about his coaching style, and it's been interesting to hear Constantine talk about this consultancy role because I half wonder whether Ranić would have pushed for a more sporting director official title and had to compromise on consultancy because this is a guy obsessed with building something from the start. And then from that point of view, you know, United aren't a blank canvas, but as Johnny says, that's what Solskjaer did. He's left this squad now of pretty talented squad. The bad apples are gone, if you like. So it's perfect for Ranić if he's given the keys. But as you say, in terms of a culture shock, I think the players are in for a bit of a surprise. I don't think it's going to be one of these where we see an immediate bounce because by all accounts, and Constantine, I'd be interested in your views on this, the kind of football Ranić likes is, to quote him in this interview that I was listening to, the heavy metal football. It's not a slow waltz. You know, he talked about his similarities with Klopp. He talked about things that they've done at Red Bull he talked about the five different phases of play. How do we deal with the ball? How do we deal with the opposition having it? What do we do when we win it? And what do we do when we lose it? And all of it is geared towards pressing, pressing as a team. Talks about winning the ball back within six to eight seconds after you lose it. And he talks about what to do with it in the 10 seconds after you get the ball back. That takes time. That takes training. It takes fitness. And it's the kind of football that we've not seen from Manchester United for, for a long, long time. And so I'd be interested, like Constantine, has that always been a theme with his teams? Do you think that's something he's going to implement with this United team? Because I think if he does, to answer your question to you, players like Jaden Sancho, Mason Greenwood, Marcus Rashford, young players with pace who can who could really benefit from that kind of system. You know, imagine those front three flying at a defence, pinching the ball back and then going on the attack. That's going to be terrifying. 
Yeah, sure, absolutely. Um, I think uh, people often look now at his uh, RB Leipzig uh, teams, although, I mean, look at it uh, precisely, then he hasn't really coached or he didn't really coach the team for long. He, he was more of a sporting director there at Leipzig for most for m most of his time. Uh, so he was more involved in recruiting and also recruiting the, the coaches, by the way. So Ralf Hasenhüttl was one of his favorite appointments as, as uh, RB Leipzig manager. Um, so, and Ralf Hasenhüttl also embraces kind of that, that high intense uh, pressing style has has done so in the past um but when we look at Ralph Rangnick's career I think the most striking example of how his football should look or he wants it to look like is uh Hoffenheim and there was a time when he played essentially with three center forwards and, and another number 10 behind it and three fast-paced strikers um and just you know getting the ball somewhere in midfield with um, some of great, uh, great, employing great tacklers in midfield, getting the ball and then using these, what you just said, these eight to 10 seconds. And he believes in that uh, using the eight to 10 seconds uh, until you create a shot, uh, because he believes if, if it takes longer than the 10, 12 seconds, then basically the opportunity to create a shot or to have a chance to score a goal is more or less gone is, is you know, below 5% or so. Um, so he believes really in, in that kind of uh, also statistical evidence. Um, and he believes that you need direct players who, who want to drive to, towards the goal. He, he wants pace and he also wants strikers who get separation from defenders. And that's something when you look at United, there are a couple of issues or have been in, in, in recent times. Um, strikers don't necessarily get separation from defenders. They are somewhere stuck or even get lost uh, within the opposing defense. And also the connection between, let's say, midfield and the attack is not there. So you have maybe a great tackler in, or you have intense players who can um, regain possession. But what, what then? There's no connection between the midfielders and, and, and the rest of the, order of the attack. And that's something Ref Rangli will work on. And also there might be some players who will suffer uh, then because they might not be up to par and they might not, um, you know, fulfill the tasks Rangnick wants him to do. So <laughs> that, that would be interesting to see. Um, and also in the past, if, if you look back at our Rangnick's career, there have been a few, let's say, diva-like players who, who didn't want to um, do any defensive tasks, who didn't want to back, track back and so on, uh, like Krasimir Balakov, the Bulgarian playmaker who played for Rangnick uh, when Rangnick coached uh, VfB Stuttgart. So Balakov was, you know, later parts of his career um, and he was a typical, oh, somewhat old-fashioned number 10. So he liked to get the ball somewhere behind the halfway line, play a nice pass, you know, create shots, but do it more in a slow fashion and, uh, yeah, a little bit old-fashioned in a way, but he was, of course, a tremendous technical player, but he wasn't really one to uh, put on miles there. Um, so, and Rangnick was pretty much not in favor of Balakov, who was, who was an institution at Stuttgart uh, because of what, what he achieved with the team. So, um, I mean, I'm, I'm sure Rangnick knows that he has to be careful with just dropping stars and uh, benching them and so on, um, but he also has a clear vision. So he's, I don't think he will shy away from benching someone if the, a certain player doesn't really commit his all to what Rangnick wants to do, at least over a couple of weeks, then he will make these hard decisions. And I guess, I hope for him that at United and the uh, front office and all the people, all the other people in charge uh, back him uh, when when it comes to these tough decisions, whisper Ronaldo quietly. Uh, Constantin Ekner, <laughs> thank you very much for joining us on the Game Podcast. You can read his brilliant profile piece on the Times app right now. But listen, make sure you're subscribed, and you can get all of our award-winning journalism to the Times and the Sunday Times as well. If you sign up today, you'll get yourself one month free. This is the point. I say thank you to Tom Clark, thank you to Jonathan Northcroft and Constantine for being with me today, and to all of you for listening. Uh, as I say, make sure you're subscribed. It's the times.co.uk forward slash the game. Loads for us to talk about between here and Monday. We will see you then.